This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. Nurses are looked to for comfort, advice, and healing. But what happens when the healer requires extra help? Today, we'll discuss mental health and how everyone, even healthcare providers, can find resources when life gets complicated. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together, we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working in jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is the College Handoff. Today, our first guest is Dr. Heidi Vaudry, who shares the importance of mental health. As president and CEO of Beehive Comprehensive Clinic, Vaudry recognizes the connection between mind and body and how the health of one can impact the other. Second, we'll hear from Cindy Filoso, a nurse who worked for 24 years in the ICU and emergency room care before transitioning to a managerial position at Ameriben, an organization that processes medical claims. Today, we have Heidi Vaudry with us. She is the president and CEO of the Beehive Comprehensive Clinic. Heidi, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so glad to have you. And you have a, a long background and lots of different expertise um, involving a ton of different nursing topics. So we're excited to, to talk to you. Maybe we can just start, though, with the way they introduced you. You're the president and CEO of an organization of the Beehive Comprehensive Clinic. I wonder if you can just walk us through um, what it's been like being um, the owner of a business uh, here in uh, here in Utah. A lot of nurses, I'm sure, haven't really considered or thought about, at least in much detail, about starting their own business. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, I wouldn't say that I ever set out to open my own business. Um, I worked in a, a few clinics prior to that, and each clinic taught me some good things and some bad things about ways to run a, particularly a business and a medical clinic. Um, and as I had those experiences, I felt like there's, there's some pieces missing um, in a standard medical clinic format and the way people are run through very quickly, you know, 10 minute appointments or 15 minute appointments um, that don't allow nurse practitioners to practice to their full strength. Because nurse practitioners by nature are holistic and whole person minded and um, education oriented. And so I ultimately opened my own practice a year and a half ago. Um, I now employ two other nurse practitioners, both of whom were former students of mine. Wow. And we have managed to grow it very successfully and very quickly, um, all word of mouth, which I feel is really cool. Um, and our model at our clinic is to have much longer intake appointments. We do 60-minute initial visits and 30-minute follow-ups so that we can actually cover all of the topics that need to be covered in a single visit because we recognize that the, all these things are connected. And so this is where we have this mind-body connection here where we need to balance um, meeting the needs of people's mental health um, management, med management, but also psychosocial needs there. We do have a counselor in-house um, combined with giving adequate attention to all of these interconnected disease processes. You can't really address diabetes without also addressing their kidney function, which is also connected to their hypertension, et cetera. Interesting. Yeah, I can totally see why that would be such a important um and a valuable resource for patients. It sounds like it's a very different business model than most other clinics and other healthcare institutions that, I mean, I myself am personally familiar with. What, what motivated that in you um, to, you know, develop an organization that was focused much more on the holistic part of an individual? Well, like I said, um, it's the superpower of nurse practitioners to be able to address people in this way. Um, the one of the clinics I worked at was for a larger organization, and I was constantly being pressured to see more patients, see them faster. Um, and, and the patients were drawn to me because I would take time to sit down and explain things to them and help them understand their underlying disease process and make connections with why their body was feeling this way or responding, you know, what, like connecting stomach aches to emotional stressors, those kinds of things. 
Um, and it just felt very difficult for me to practice authentically uh, in an environment where I was being pressured to see more people faster. And so um, I wouldn't say that I'm getting wealthy from running my own clinic, certainly not, but we've been successful and and I employ you know nine employees right now, and I'm very proud of that. Mm. Yeah, that's that's definitely unique, and I'm glad that things are moving the right direction. Do you think there's a future for more clinics like yours in, in the future and upcoming healthcare markets? I think people crave it. Um, the fact that within a year and a half, we have, we're close to 1,800 patients right now, just in a year and a half, to, and we get phone calls every day from people referring their friends and neighbors and family members. Um, speaks to the fact that there are people who need and want this kind of health care. Um, again, because we have time to sit and help them dig through all of their pile of puzzling symptoms and make connections that may be difficult to um, manage in a clinical setting where you get 10-minute appointments. I see. Okay. Yeah. I know that definitely cleared up some of the misconceptions and confusion that I had on that. That's really cool. One other quick question about the business, though. Um, as you mentioned, you didn't necessarily graduate nursing school with an ambition to go start your own business. Um, did you have to get further training or anything? Or were there any growth like hiccups along the way that made this kind of like a, a hard learning process? Or was there a little bit of a learning curve or did you handle it pretty well? Well, so the secret to success is to surround yourself with smart people. Um, I, I did not. So when I went through nurse practitioner school, they did not include uh, business classes as a part of that. And I think it's actually really, really important for you to understand the business side of it. My secret sauce is my office manager. Um, and so she had a very unique skill set uh, that certainly um, enabled me to be able to successfully get this up and running. But the other things that we did were to talk to other small clinics. We had a nurse practitioner-led clinic up in Providence that was very kind to talk to us and point us in the direction we were looking for, for the correct billing and credentialing and coding company, as well as charting software and some other things that have really turned out to be very, very successful and important parts of our business plan. I do want to move on now a little bit to um, a topic you mentioned previously. You talked about one of the niche type of clients that you'll have is someone who struggles uh, not only with a physical ailment, but also with a mental health ailment as well. Um, what are some of the advantages of, of going to a clinic like yours if, if you are struggling with uh, a mental health clinic that you might not get going to a more typical uh, primary care clinic? So I feel like most primary care providers are comfortable with a couple of medications to prescribe for depression or anxiety. Um, and if you don't have success with one or, you know, that one, and then we switch to this one, you're not feeling well, then they've kind of run out of their wheelhouse. And also most clinics don't really have time to deep dive and suss out what's really going on. Um, one of the things that we pride ourselves on in our clinic is understanding the connection of unresolved trauma with physical and mental symptoms. Um, there's a ton of data on what we call adverse childhood events. Uh, and the fact that if you have a high ACE score for adverse childhood events, that your risk for developing autoimmune disorders that your risk of dying young of all-cause mortality, and that includes cardiac problems or cancer or otherwise, skyrockets. Um, our clinicians uh, were all pretty savvy with dealing with um, a spectrum of psychiatric care. Um, I, I, when I first went into the family nurse practitioner track, I went to it saying, I really don't like mental health. That is not my jam. I'm going to do everything but mental health. And then you start going to clinic and you realize within about the first two days that half of what walks into the door is mental health. And it may walk in disguised as back pain, as headaches, as chest pain, um, as fatigue, all of these things. And you just really cannot separate the two. Interesting. How did you and your employees get to be, as you put it, savvy and identifying and kind of, you know, maybe recognizing those risk factors that a patient might walk in with that might put them on some type of spectrum of struggling with a mental health disorder? 
So for me, it was a lot of self-study. I mean, certainly I had my training when I was in school. I've done some additional psychiatric training with seminars and continuing education. Um, a lot of it um, has just stemmed from experience and being brave enough to dive in and dig and figure things out. Um, when I um, started to really recognize the trauma connection, um, there's there's a particular book that I read that really kind of shifted the the focus um, and the trajectory of my practice. And it's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's written by a psychiatrist named Bessel van der Kolk. And this was uh, life-changing for me as a clinician to understand the deep connection of trauma to physical wellness. So the, the three of us providers have all specifically sought out additional training, continuing education on mental health and management and evaluation. And, and we collaborate closely so we can bounce cases off of each other and, and learn from cases as we go as well. Yeah, that's definitely something that's requiring a lot of nurses. I know a lot of our nurses here at BYU, they're, they're definitely trying to become better at this. And I think across the, the nursing community as a whole, every nurse is trying to become better at recognizing some of these uh, underlying factors behind mental uh, health and trauma and things like that. Speaking of that, though, what advice would you give to a nursing student about ways they can become more savvy in this topic that, to be quite frank, I don't think we spend enough time really talking about? That's a really good question. One of the things that I have found out recently about the BYU um, graduates in particular, because I'm on the committee that evaluates nurse practitioner student applications, I saw on all of the BYU student graduate applications that came through that the students had done the QPR suicide prevention training. And I was really excited to see that because I've been a QPR instructor for about five years now and have taught dozens and dozens of these courses in the community. Um, and, and I thought, man, times have changed and I'm so excited that they've changed. I feel like this is critical, basic training that every single nurse needs to have before they go to the bedside, not just for themselves, but also for their coworkers. Um, I lost a close friend and colleague of mine who's a hospitalist to suicide just a little over a year ago. Um, and I've had conversations with other fellow bedside nurses late at night when you're on a night shift and things get quiet, where several of them revealed bouts of severe depression with suicidality, and none of them had used the EAP, Employee Assistance Program Counseling, or um, had done therapy or otherwise. Um, and, and I feel like one of the most important conversations that we need to have and need to change uh, in medicine is that we've got to heal ourselves first and we've got to be aware of our own needs first before we can adequately go on and take care of the other people around us. I love that. That's definitely a theme that has been reoccurring. I think the pandemic has reminded us in the most painful way that that is super true, that you really can't help other people if you yourself is, if you yourself is not in a position uh, to be helpful. Why do you think, and you mentioned some nurses that you've rubbed shoulders with and you've worked with, they're not necessarily taking the help that's available. Why do you think that's the case? Is it so much that the help is not effective? Are these types of employee self-evaluation-like forms not really effective? Or is it more of a a culture thing? Like what needs to change in order to help nurses uh, learn to take care of themselves a little bit better? Or maybe not learn, but just become able to do so. It's absolutely a culture thing. Now I've been a nurse for a long time. I graduated from BYU in 1999. I remember coming out of there not even understanding why you might have someone on two different antidepressants. I remember looking at someone's medication list and thinking fluoxetine and wellbutrin, how come they're on two meds for their mental health? Like it, it feels like it was such kind of a, a fleeting, like, oh yeah, there's all these meds. You need to know that they're psych meds. And, and that was kind of it. Generationally, we never talked about going to therapy. That was something that only crazy people did. And you went into nursing knowing that there was going to be hard stuff and you chose this profession. And so you're supposed to just suck it up and, and inhale all of this trauma, this residual and vicarious trauma of other people and move on. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my seventh semester of graduate school that I finally hit a wall and thought, this is getting too heavy for me to carry. And I finally took advantage of the student counseling services on the U of U campus 
Um, in addition to getting on medication for something lifelong depression that comes in waves. And, and it was revelatory to me how much that weight was able to be lifted with the right professional help. And it's something that I've been very vocal about in public. I speak to a lot of community groups um, and I speak to other nursing professionals and I tell them, you need to take care of yourself. And if this includes medication, then go for it. I feel like anyone who goes into nursing is going to experience trauma and repeated trauma throughout their careers. So I feel like all nurses should just make a habit of going and seeing a therapist and checking in periodically. Um, the thing that's been really interesting to me is as I have promised, or excuse me, as I have processed traumatic events, um, it's been interesting to me how often my brain will go back and connect old trauma that I had totally forgotten about, like a bad code in the ICU or this patient that died or a time that I was assaulted in the ICU, those kinds of things that I had just kind of stuffed down and forgotten about, but that were still stewing in the back of my brain as unresolved trauma. So it's something that I do regularly. Um, and in fact, right after this interview today, I have my regular counseling session to just hash through the usual muck of life and make sure that I'm on top of that stuff so that it doesn't get to me. Amazing. Heidi, thanks for sharing that and for being open about even your own personal experience with regards to these types of um, sensitive and also personal issues that some people kind of treat almost taboo. I think that's really great that you're talking about it. I think that will help kind of take down some of the cultural norms and toxic expectations we have around these types of topics. And you mentioned and you said that most nursing nurses at some point should probably go and visit a counselor. Where do you think like the line is? Like where at what point does do, does someone need to consider, oh, maybe I, this load is actually too heavy for me. Maybe I do need to go to therapy. I mean, I'm sure the short answer is everyone should go to therapy because it's great. <laughs> but like on, on a deeper level, when is it someone that actually really does need to make this a priority in their life? And when is it? So, when, when do you know that your load is so heavy that you need to do that? That's actually a really good question because certainly everyone has different levels of resilience towards events that happen. I have this photo that I use in my presentation that shows two dogs that went through a mud puddle and one dog is really short and has mud up to his chin and the other one's like a tall golden retriever and the mud only comes partway up his legs and the golden retriever looks like he's had a great day and the little dog looks very grumpy. Um, so you can have two people go through the same event and have a very different personal experience with that. So you can have two people that respond to a code and for one person, they're able to compartmentalize it and be like, I'm just here doing compressions and whatever, um, while the other person is panicking and, and breaking down and, and has nightmares and trauma from this. So first off, there's not a real specific like, well, hey, if you've attended 10 codes, then you should go to the counselor. Mm -hmm. um, I, <laughs> you're right that the short answer is everyone should go to counseling because everyone has some trauma in their past that affects their um, ability to deliver care. I would say that when you start to feel apprehensive about going to work or you feel very depleted and the thought of, or like you see the phone ring and it's staffing calling you to pick up an extra shift and you think, oh my gosh, there's literally no way that I don't have the mental and physical and emotional capacity to go in and do a shift today. Um, any of those times when you start to find sleep disturbances setting in, for me, that's a really sensitive indicator for me is when my sleep gets disrupted. Um, that just tells me that my brain's chewing on stuff that it needs to resolve. Um, and so sleep disturbances, digestive disturbances, um, brain fog. So when you get a traumatized brain, um, one of the ways your brain copes with that is just like literally shutting down parts of your brain. They've done functional MRIs on people who have had trauma and seeing that portions of their brain literally become less active. And so if you're thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm getting stupid and I hate my job and I can't sleep and everything is awful and I'm starting to get really irritable with the people around me and this is affecting my relationships, those are all signs that you're heading into this danger zone of um, compassion fatigue um, where, where you need to have someone fill the hole at the bottom of your bucket 
and help you replete so that you can carry on doing the work that you've been called to do. I think most nurses go into nursing, not just for a paycheck, not just for a job. I feel like it's a calling for most people. It's something that we want to do. We are helpers by nature. We want to help those people around us, but it comes at a personal cost. And so you just have to recognize that in order to be able to continue doing it, there's some maintenance that needs to be done. I love that. And maybe I can just ask a follow-up question. It's a little more personal. You've worked as an EMT. You've done a lot of um, kind of like pre-hospital care as well um, through Mount Tipinogos and a couple other uh, rescue organizations. Do you think those types of things have made you a little more, I don't want to say resilient, but just kind of like, you know, more like the golden retriever, like you've seen that type of stuff. Does this, as you get more exposed to more trauma, does, does that build your resilience or does it tear it down? What do you think? That's actually a really interesting question. Um, I remember the first time I went on a rescue, and this was when I was an undergraduate student. And uh, the person, um, it was a search and rescue call out, and a man had been riding his horse up Battle Creek Canyon in Pleasant Grove, and the horse got spooked and dumped him off the horse at the top of the waterfall, and both the man and the horse fell off down into the bottom of the waterfall, and they both died. And that was the first time that I'd ever really seen trauma like that and seen a dead person. Um, and that was really hard for me. And as a, I don't know how old I was, maybe 19 year old, you kind of take your cues wow. off the people around you. And they're all kind of joking, like EMS people in particular have a pretty uh, gritty sense of humor <laughs> a little morbid and they're like let's go get sausage pizza you know and I'm like oh my gosh I've never seen a dead person before um, but then as I look at kind of the lifetime of accumulated trauma um, from working in pre-hospital environment um, and then um, hospital environment where the deaths are often more kind of contained or controlled like it's it's just a totally different environment there but then i also did eight years of infant bereavement support work after our own baby passed away shortly after birth and so i've held over 130 dead babies babies that passed away shortly before or after birth and i dressed them and i photographed them and i spent hours retouching those photos um and I got to a point, I remember uh, somewhere around the 130 mark, like maybe five babies before I, I stopped doing this, where um, I realized that I was empathetically completely burned out. Um, I remember leaving this hospital room at Primary Children's where everyone had been crying and there were all these people and the nurses were crying. And I just went and did my job. And, and I felt that whole time, like, I should be feeling something. And this is really scary and freaky that I'm not feeling any emotion. Like, I had hit this point of deep emotional burnout. Um, and that was a real wake-up call for me that I needed to uh, be more mindful about my boundaries, about um, instead of trying to save everyone all the time, that I had to be able to put some protective fences up around me to maintain my emotional health. Um, then as I've transitioned into primary care, it's a different kind of trauma because instead of have, taking care of a patient for 12 hours and maybe they pass away and there's a bad outcome and you feel kind of attached to that, as a bedside nurse, it's still not ultimately your responsibility that they passed away. Like it's kind of this shared community, like we were all taking care of this person um, kind of a thing. And as primary care, I have patients that I've been taking care of for five years uh, that have passed away. And in the last year, I've had, I think I'm up to 14 people who have passed away um, from various things, everything from a pulmonary embolism to being buried in an avalanche to suicide, um, to cancer, you know, this whole smorgasbord of things. And it's it's a very different kind of trauma because I have a different relationship with those patients. Um, and so this is why I say for me, I have to see my therapist regularly to process and offload these traumas as they come because I know that I'm in a field where that's just going to keep coming. And I cannot, I've already found out that they can't just swallow it, swallow it, swallow it, stuff it down and keep going because that leads to a bad place of compassion fatigue that I don't want to go back to. Wow. You know, you brought up something I hadn't considered before, and that's 
there's almost like a irony or there's a conflict between being empathetic, which is a very important personality characteristic that I think every healthcare provider needs. But then also, like you said, not being, not taking like complete ownership over someone else's life and their well-being because there is only so much that you can do. So how do you balance those? How do you know at what point you're being too empathetic and you're too involved in a patient's life to the point where it's going to be emotionally damaging to your own? That's a really good question because especially in a primary care role, I do have relationships with these people and there's many families where I take care of multiple generations of them. Um, And so I feel very connected to my patients and I care about them deeply. Uh, It's challenging when you have someone who you spend, you know, your 30 minutes in the clinic visit and you educate them and you support them and you give them all the tools and then they leave and they choose not to do any of those things and then they have a bad outcome. Um, What I've learned and what I tell my nurse practitioner students as they come through is that you can only care about people's health as much as they do. Like, it's kind of like parenting. I'm here to give you the tools and and the means to be able to do it and it's up to you to take flight. And it feels the first time I had to really kind of put that mental fence up where it was like, oh, I'm so frustrated. This person's non-compliant with their meds. And then they come in and they're a real mess and they're feeling terrible and suicidal. But then I ask, how are you taking your meds? No, maybe once a week. Well, then there's a limit to what I can do to help you. Um, And so that's something that my therapist has helped me work on over time is to set up what my window of tolerance for how much I'm willing to take on of other people's burdens um, and that I have to give them the responsibility and the free agency to do what they're going to do with that information. Hmm. I like that. I didn't really consider healthcare as a form of parenting in some ways. I think that's a really, um, it's a very clear way of almost elevating the role of that profession and making that something that's even more important and more applicable in the lives of your patients. I do want to transition a little bit to, I don't want to say a lighter topic, but for lack of a better phrase, you were interviewed on KSL to talk about um, mental health among healthcare workers, and this was all happening during the pandemic. And I'm curious if, as the pandemic is wearing down, if you think the mental health of healthcare workers is starting to pick up, if we're starting to feel like, you know, we've rounded a corner, it's downhill from here, um, are things going to get better in terms of mental health for our healthcare workers, or are we kind of in the same place we've always been? What do you think? I think that's a really interesting question um, because I'm primary care provider for a number of health care providers, and that includes both physicians and nurses and some EMTs and you know a few other various kind of allied healthcare professionals. Um, and definitely deep in the pit of the pandemic, particularly this second wave, like I think everyone was like, you know, initially when things got bad, everyone was like, healthcare heroes, have a cookie, you're amazing. And then by the time Omicron hit, we're all out here saying the same thing, stay home, wear your mask, be careful. And we're, you know, basically getting spit on in public. Nobody cares. They don't want to hear it anymore. They don't care about your masks. Um, and as I've talked to these nurses that were in the height of, say, the Delta and the Omicron wave, they're just exhausted Um, Fighting the disinformation, the friends and family members posting stuff that they got on false news websites with, you know, weird remedies and how masks are trying to kill us and the vaccines are trying to kill us. All the weird theories that you heard. Um, Certainly, I know a ton of providers and nurses who have left the profession entirely. And I think that that is going to be a horrific blow to our ability to provide care for people in the United States as like just a general trend. Um, As things are starting to lighten, um, I would say that the mood everywhere is starting to lighten, but there's still a ton of trauma to untangle from the last two years. And so any of the healthcare providers that are out there listening to this, I hope that you will go to counseling and unravel some of this trauma, process it, because it's been immense. Even if you were not directly taking care of people who died because of COVID, you know someone who died because of COVID. You were um, understaffed and overworked. Um, You had to fight disinformation. All these things that just cause cumulative trauma that leads to burnout and compassion fatigue and makes people feel like they can't carry on. So 
while I think we're on an upswing for now and kind of learning to live with it, I think there's a lot of damage that needs to be undone. Interesting. That makes me at least hopeful. And I like this idea of um, not only yourself, Heidi, but other podcast guests, guests that we've had in the past that have been re- rehearsing the same message that healthcare workers need to take better care of themselves, not only for themselves, but for those around them, those they serve in the community. Um, and I think therapy and mental health is definitely a large part of that. So I really want to thank you, Heidi, for sharing your perspective on that. That's been very helpful. Yeah, you bet. Do you have any other thoughts or advice you would give to nursing students right now as they're about to enter this, um, this healthcare world that, as you kind of put it, is kind of down on its knees right now and, and is a little bit crippled and is recovering from the pandemic? I would say there's a lot of room for optimism. Um, my daughter had surgery yesterday, um, and so we bumped shoulders with a bunch of nurses yesterday, and she had to have a procedure in interventional radiology first before she went over to the operating room. So she saw a lot of different care providers along the way. And her observation last night was the nurses were so nice and they really run the hospital. (laughs) And I said, they absolutely do. Um, the, The world needs good, compassionate, smart nurses. I I think there's nothing more comforting and reassuring um, than having a nurse that has your back when you're in a scary position, whether, you know, it's an inpatient or outpatient kind of a setting. And and nurses have the superpower of listening to understand, educating, and helping people connect the dots and also being um, advocates uh, to help people navigate the healthcare system. And so I think it's exciting that we have these, um, this new generation of nurses coming up that are skilled in ways um, and have wisdom that my generation did not have. What I see in this younger generation is a willingness and openness about discussing mental health challenges um, and about connecting those dots uh, that just was not really on the table with us older nurses. So go forth and do good things. I love that. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for sharing uh, your amazing perspectives and for talking about some really heavy topics. It's definitely not something that's easy, but I think it's definitely something that's necessary. Yeah, you bet. As a reminder, UIU nursing students are responsible for updating their university contact information within their MyBYU account each semester. This includes making sure you have a correct phone number, an email address you often check, a valid mailing address, and, should you get married, a consistent last name that matches your student ID and clinical badges. Thanks! Today in the studio, we have Cindy Filoso with us, and she is a Utilization Management RN, as well as a BYU alumni. We are so happy to have her here. Welcome, Cindy! Oh, hello! Thank you! Glad to be here. Now, to begin, I want to ask you a little bit about your career. So you worked um, as an RN for 24 years, with 17 of those years being in the ER and six of those years being in the adult ICU. So what drew you to those specific areas of nursing? You know, not everyone wants to go, you know, be in the chaos of the ER or the adult ICU. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I, I don't know how nursing school is set up now, but when we jumped into our clinicals, I originally went in with a game plan of, you know, I want to be in the OR. I like, I lo- I'm fascinated, like pathophysiology was my absolute favorite class. And so I thought, I want to, I want to see surgeries and all of that. Well, I didn't like the smell. I didn't like to be cold. And so when I went through my OR rotation, I thought, mm, maybe I need to rethink this. And then towards the end of our clinicals, we went into the ICU and ER. And it just, I I think it's like anything else. You just follow your heart and where it leads you. And I just so felt at home there, which I I guess I'm a little chaotic anyway, but I flow with that. And I, with my skill set, I just thought, you know, I can handle this and I can be calm in a traumatic situation for the most part, which I think is half the battle of just being able to be adjustable and keep a level head. So that's what drew me there. And, you know, shout out to Elaine Bond. She was my clinical educator and I just loved her. 
I gleaned all I could from her and it wasn't near enough, but she was awesome. Uh, I loved how you called it your home. I think that's so important that wherever you end up nursing, you feel like it's where you belong. Um, So what's really interesting is that after 24 years, you know, in these very high adrenaline areas of the hospital, you made a really big pivot and you are now working for Ameriben on their medical management team, which is under their utilization management. So first off, what is Ameriben? And second, why did you decide to switch from the ER and adult ICU to something that's more focused on like insurance and administration? Sure, sure. Um, so first off, Ameribin is a third party administrator. And basically what they do is they customize healthcare plans for self-funded clients. Um, some of the clients are like Newell's brand. Um, they're part of Rubbermaid, Sunbeam Corporation. Um, I don't know if Sportsman's Warehouse, Academy Sports, just a bunch of different groups. And they come together rather than pooling their insurance into one big pot. They're self-funded for the corporation. And so what they do is say, hey, how can we manage our healthcare and give our members or our employees the best coverage that we can in bang for our dollar? And so that's what Ameribin does. We are a subsidiary of Anthem, which is one of the big, they call them the big dinosaurs of the four insurance groups. They're um, part of the Blue Cross Blue Shield network. And so that's what Ameribin is. Um, in answer to your second question, why did I leave? Um, I Like I said, I love the ER. I still love helping people. I think as nurses, that's why we go into nursing is we wanna help people on whatever level it is, whether it's home health, labor delivery, or critical care. Um, and as a nurse, people think you just know everything. They're like, oh, let me call you neighbors, friends, whatever. And, um, I, you have to find a way in that high adrenaline environment to, I wouldn't say I'm an adrenaline junkie, but you have to find a way to compartmentalize and dump. You come across really fun stuff and you see the worst of society and anywhere in between. And for me, I just, after 24 years, I thought I, I didn't learn all that I could have learned. I thought, okay, if you know enough, walk away. but I got to a point where, honestly, my heart just couldn't take the critical care anymore. I was just like, you'd see a patient come in and I wasn't thinking, oh my gosh, look at this awesome you know, situation, this man degloved his arm. And, and it's fascinating from a science perspective and watching that unfold, but I found my mind started going more towards, oh my gosh, he's a self-employed guy. And he was installing a garage door and took off his dominant hand we took him to surgery and he ended up being okay, but you know, that put him back how much time that's probably almost going to bankrupt his family. And so I thought, you know, I, one of the doctors told me, you know, everybody else gets more hardened and you got more compassionate. And so I did it more to protect my heart and think, what can I do nursing wise? Cause nursing is so diverse. I thought, how can I still be helpful and just kind of, I've done my time, I've taught and educated as much as I possibly can in that realm and just find something different. So I happened to be at a wedding of a family member and, you know, networking. And this friend of my sister-in-law said, hey, you ought to come work for us. This company is awesome. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. We didn't teach that and they, I didn't ever know about it in nursing school. And so I investigated, I Googled Ameribin and researched out what utilization management was, and I thought, huh, yeah, that might be kind of interesting. So you mentioned that, you know, your heart couldn't take critical care anymore. Do you have a specific experience or a specific memory of when you realized that, like, your heart couldn't take it anymore? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yes. And, um, one one situation that I had, I wasn't at work. This happened outside of work. Um, I was traveling with my family and we were driving along and we came upon, uh, we were trying to get back on the freeway. And as we were doing that, 
we were probably about 10 or 13 cars back and an ambulance was coming up our lane. They were diverting traffic over, kind of snugging us up because it was actually the on-ramp. Um, the ambulance was going back a different direction in our lane, if that makes sense, because that's the easiest way to get back to the road that we had come from. And it was going lights and sirens. And the one thing I you know about critical care is um, there's laws that govern how ambulances can go. They get dispatched to a scene, lights and sirens, because they never know, you know how bad is it going to be. But when they leave a situation, if they go lights and sirens, there's only certain categories of life-threatening scenes that they can pull lights and sirens to be that dramatic, if you will. Um, so I knew that peeling back, coming in our lane, that can't be good. And as we, they were directing traffic, trying to keep us out of the main fray of this accident, um, we were able to see the accident just straight on. And I had worked with trauma for you know many, many years. And there's different ways that you classify trauma. And part of it is how fast was the accident? How much was the vehicle intrusion? And all of these different things that tell you what kind of shape odds are the person that was in that accident is going to be in or what kind of traumatic injury they might have. And I remember as we pulled up and I could see this, my brain just, you know, starts calculating. And it was about a two foot intrusion, which is automatically a trauma one. That's what takes a lot of damage on a suburban to push it in that far. And so I knew the person that left the scene was not in good shape. And as I'm trying to process the scene, I thought, okay, yeah, you know, this is totally the stuff that I used to do. I just burst into tears and started to cry. And my kids were in the car and my husband and they're just going, mom, honey, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And I got home and I was trying to think through it. And I'm like, gosh, you know, I've been through this before. Why? Why did that happen? And as I thought about it, they said, do you know that person? And I said, no. And but I knew that it was a bad situation and that individual didn't end up living. And I had found that out later when I had gone back to work. And I just thought, you know, I, I, like I said earlier, you you try to qualify your experience, like any stress you have, finals week is the worst week or whatever it is. Um, you take a run, you go on a bike ride, you play the piano, you dance, you do whatever, go to the movies, just decompress. And I realized with that experience that I wasn't able to decompress anymore. 24 years of being in the thick and the grind of things just really had caught up to me. And I thought, you know, that's when I realized in answer to your question, that's when I realized my heart couldn't take it anymore. I could try and decompress, but it had caught up to me because I'd never burst into tears about anything critical like that. You just, you go into your mom mindset. My kids would always say, I want my mommy, not my nurse mommy, because you can't think critically if you're in the mom mindset. And so that was that was when I knew I needed to start thinking of an exit strategy. Thank you for sharing that. That I feel like that's a moment so many nurses have, but they don't talk about. So thank you for being willing to talk about that and bring awareness to, you know, burning out of a specific field and needing a change. I think that's so important. So something else I'm really interested by is that you are also a remote employee, which is really interesting. And that can affect what your workday looks like. So what does a normal workday look like for you? Are you communicating with patients often? Are you communicating with hospitals? Do you have a team you communicate with? Just run me, do, run me through the various things you do during a day. Okay. Um, the first part is my job is very technical. My family teased me like, oh, come on, mom, you know, because I'm not one to get the newest gadget and all of that. But um, I, I have an office in my home. My commute's about 10 feet from my bedroom, so that's not bad. Saves on gas. Um, but I get up in the morning, and I work 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, Mountain Standard Time. Um, but I get up, I sign on to my system, and I get going. I have a queue or a list of tasks that I work on. And so what I do most of the day is just working on processing people's requests. Um, 
I did not know this going in to nursing school. As you're going through your day and working, you're doing all this patient care and you, you know, start an IV, you give a medication, you know, you send them to CT scan or whatever it is you're doing throughout your hospital care day. There's a background side of that that's coded and billed for the insurance. And so that's more the focus of where I work from. I love how in-depth you're going. Like your job really has so many different aspects to it. So what are the certifications or trainings your job requires as a utilization management RN? The One of the first qualifications is you have to have three to five years of clinical experience. And again, like I said, you have your nursing experience that you do, whether it's in a facility, it's in, in a hospital setting, in you know home health or whatever it is, you've got to have that experience to be able to understand the why behind it when, um, when you're thinking about how to build this or how to process it without that critical experience, this job, you wouldn't be able to do the job. Um, some of the requirements, we have to hold a CPR, current CPR card. Um, and then some of the other things depend on how you end up wanting to go. My my company, Ameribin, is really big on their corporate philosophy is developing great leaders in family, business, community, and the world. And so they really do perpetuate and encourage us to seek out leadership opportunities. So how has your background as an RN helped you as you've been, you know, communicating with patients and as you've been making sure they get what they need? Um, it's really helpful. A lot of times we'll get um, NICU admissions, like a brand new baby develops respiratory distress and they have these problems. Um, you have to determine, again, based on those guidelines, what level of NICU do, are they in? Are they in nursery one, two, NICU three, NICU four? Um, and how long of a stay you anticipate that? Because you kind of give stays based on the clinical that they provide. Um, and if you are not familiar with the process of anatomy and physiology and disease process and whatnot, or even just the systems of that, that might be a difficult review for you because you wouldn't know, oh my goodness, they were they were on a vent or they were getting, you know, steroids dripped through their intubation tube, things like that. That tells you details that, oh, this kiddo is not getting discharged home tomorrow those kinds of things. It just helps you navigate through the clinical so you're not just doctor Googling everything to try and figure out what's going on. So I want to ask you a little bit about patient advocacy and care because, you know, even though you aren't directly in the hospital, you are still doing so much for patients and making sure they are receiving the care they need in order to be healthy and survive. So why are you passionate about patient advocacy and care and why do you think it's important to the job you do? Um, that's a great question. Um, a couple of things come to mind. Um, one of the most interesting experiences we had is we had a lady who had injured her shoulder. And on the guideline, in order to approve of that shoulder surgery, one of the hard requirements is they've got to have three months of physical therapy. Well, this lady hadn't had three months of physical therapy. So um, the doctor had called in, she's on the table, this needs to be approved now, and we were able to get in touch with our medical reviewer. They upheld the determination of saying, no, this can't be done, you haven't met all the requirements yet, you can't do this surgery. And of course, physician was furious, and the member didn't understand why. So when she got explained that this has to have this much physical therapy in order to be able to approve of this, she went to a different doctor and did physical therapy and called our medical management director and said, I want to thank you for that because I never did need surgery. The physical therapy fixed me. And I find it fascinating. People tell me all the time, oh, you're the no people. But like I said, these guidelines are in place and I'm just an RN. I don't set these guidelines. <laughs> and so it's kind of fun in my mind, the puzzle piece 
to say, what does a doctor or a set of doctors, what do they deem necessary in order to get an MRI of a brain? There's different categories or shoulder surgery. There's different categories. And it's kind of a checks and balance system in a way that allows for healthcare and a little bit of fun fact behind how utilization management came into play back in the day when Medicare was starting to put sanctions on hospitals, they started to be very specific about the protocols for putting in a Foley or how you manage someone who may or may not be developing pneumonia, those kinds of things. Medicare said, hey, we're not going to pay for these if they get it in a hospital setting. And so hospitals came up with a way, they, they designed utilization management committees to say, hey, how do we make checks and balances to make sure that we're meeting this and still getting paid? And so they did reviews on, you know, which surgeons have the highest infection rate? What can we do to lower that? Is it, you know, surgeon error? Is it a processing error? And so it was kind of piece, piecing together, how do we solve this problem? Um, and our company has a decision tree. We call it the decision tree. And the questions that you ask yourself as you're reviewing is you ask, is it best for the client? And then the comp- is it best for the company? And is it the right thing to do? And then our company is devoted to saying, hey, we want to manage your healthcare as best as we can. And that means we're in charge of your dollars for how we how we expend your insurance to your members. And um, and then is it the right thing to do? You know, for instance, that shoulder surgery, that wasn't the best thing for them to pay for a $60,000 surgery when she hadn't had physical therapy yet. And the company didn't want to say, let's let go of that 60 grand and say yes. And it wasn't the right thing to do. So it kind of enables you to be the silent cheerleader for so many people that don't even know what you're doing behind the scenes. The silent cheerleader. That is such a cool title. And I love that you've compared it to that. (laughs) So, you know, we've talked about this. You had a major career switch after 24 years in the hospital and very mainstream units. So many nurses throughout their career, they're going to switch where they are working and what units they're in. So what advice do you have for nurses who are either thinking of switching their path in nursing or in the process? Do you have any sage wisdom for them? Um, my best, my thought that just keeps coming to mind is listen to your heart. Sometimes your will is there, but the flesh is weak kind of concept. And you want to say, I love the people I worked with in the ER. I they were my friends. We got along. Um, but again, when you dread getting up and going to work and not dreading, like you wake up going, Oh gosh, I gotta go to work. But there's just this heaviness in your heart and you can't figure it out. Um, pay attention to that. Your body, you know, your biometrics give you a lot of feedback. And if you listen to what your soul's trying to tell you, it's usually not wrong. (laughs) And, um, there's so many different like you said, so many different avenues to nursing that you can do. And it's not necessarily, okay, I'm tired of being a floor nurse. Now I got to move up to management. Maybe that's the best move for you. And maybe it's not, you know, maybe you take, you take a a patient down to the hyperbaric chamber and that just really seems to intrigue you. Okay. Investigate that further. What does that mean? Is there a pathway for that? If that's the road that's right for you, then it'll be the right thing to do. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That really touched my heart. And that is going to be such good advice for so many, both current nursing students and current nurses. I think a lot of people need to hear that. So do people ever compare you to Robert Parr, a.k.a. Mr. Incredible, as the insurance claim manager? (laughs) Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I am aware of. Oh, my goodness. one of the interesting things that um, I, I did want to mention about my job. So when a claim gets processed, whether it's a request for a surgery that's to be done in the future, or it comes in as a retro two years down the road, um, there's two processes in insurance. 85, 90% of insurance is processed through computer. So they submit a claim. If it's got the right diagnostic code and the right CPT code and they dovetail together, then it gets paid out. 
but we do hands-on like we touch every authorization that comes through that we are asked to pre-certify and so by doing that a lot of times you can notice inconsistencies sometimes they'll just send a demographic sheet and it has the right codes and the right procedural codes but there's not enough information to put the pieces together and i always think of you know as a client if i'm representing the client would i be willing to bankroll that no you've got to tell me okay you say they have a kidney stone but for how long what's going on what's the background story there instead of just paying out for an ivp ct scan or something like that um so yeah sometimes we get known as the bad guys but it's more needling down to figure out the why and making sure there's enough clinical to back it up when i got hired as they trained me um they just said you know our job is to try and say yes as much as we can these people are paying their premium the clients don't it's not that the clients don't want to pay they just only have a certain pot and and i get that you know we all have budgets that we have to focus on and you're at the grocery store and you want to buy all this food but you, you have to focus on what you really need and it just pulls some accountability there which in my mind makes sense because i've seen some of it that's just off the rails so yeah, it is. It's kind of the, the dark side of it, but I find it fascinating. I mean, you guys really do have to think so critically and look at all the information to make sure that you are, you know, giving the right information to the right people. It's very important. Yes. So true. So something that's really big at BYU is this idea of the healer's art, you know, that. So how have you been able to continue practicing the healer's art and this new role as someone who handles insurance and administration and not the traditional nursing things? Um, like I said earlier, um, when I sign on in the morning, I have a queue or a list in my, in my file to do. It's impressive to think, gosh, these people range from California to New York down to Florida. And in that list, they're all hurting in some way, or they're all looking for some type of help with their disability, their disease process, or something. And I think it's neat that you can pull up a patient member and look at them and think, wow, this 33-year-old lady just had a, a breast biopsy, and now they're going to go in and take that, take that lump out because they don't know if it's cancerous or not. They need to investigate more. And you don't even know them, but yet my heart goes out to her. And I think, you know, you just, you have the thought of let that go well, you know, bless the surgeon's hands that they can do what they need to do. And, and some of the things we don't touch directly, but you can certainly send out thoughts and prayers to those individuals. And I love that because like I said, they, they never know what I'm doing, but I, I certainly am a believer that God is overall and he knows how to help those people. And they may not always turn out the best way, but we have case management that we can refer them to and say, hey, this person might need a little more hands-on than what we're able to provide. And so it still gives me that sense of being able to reach out and touch people without physically being able to touch them, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. That was so beautiful. And this entire um, chat with you has been so insightful to an area of nursing that doesn't get a lot of coverage or light. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This has been a fun interview. Those are some great interviews. I, I especially loved talking to Dr. Vajri about mental health. I feel like for nurses, it's especially difficult to stay positive and stay optimistic when you see so much negativity. No, definitely. I think mental health in general is a topic that we as a society and especially among healthcare providers only beginning to scratch the surface on. So there's definitely really good insights coming our way. We've been talking for the last couple of episodes a lot about optimism. And one of our nursing students, Megan, sent us an amazing voice message on our Instagram account about how she stays optimistic and positive when life gets hard. Let's take a listen. Something that's really helped me to stay optimistic during nursing school and clinicals and all the busyness and craziness of it all is to remember your why. And on some of the really hard days, what I've done is I've actually gone back and read my application essays 
And it just really helps to reinstate that excitement and, I don't know, just passion for nursing school. And it just helps me to remember my why, especially when you got to get up at four o'clock in the morning for clinicals like once a week, you kind of need something to motivate you. And that all that's that that has helped me. Also, there's some hard days in nursing school and it can be difficult to be optimistic. Like a couple weeks ago, I saw a pediatric patient code and that was just pretty emotional. And I was having a really hard time being optimistic after that. But I was able to talk to some of my friends about it and just connecting with other students and talking about my situation really helps me to process it and then to stay optimistic about nursing. And I just always have to tell myself that it's it's worth it. You know, it's hard in nursing school, but it's worth it for the, the doors it will open and the opportunities you'll get. I really liked Megan's insights. I would never think to look back at an application for something to be reminded of my why and the reason I was doing something. But I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I think when people are rooted in their purpose, they really have the ability to be optimistic and overcome challenges that they're going to face. Just like Megan, if any of you would like to participate in our podcast and share some of your insights, go over to our Instagram account at the college handoff and send us a voice message with your thoughts. And we might even send you some cool swag. Megan may or may have not gotten a free shirt out of this. Yeah, we have some really awesome new stickers coming out. So keep your eyes out for those. That's right. Well, that's all we have for you guys this week. Make sure to tune in next week, next Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you then. Bye.